Well hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me Chris Stanwell Major. In this episode we're continuing William Creelock's Vagabonding Under Sail and we're on Chapter 7. Chapter 7. Time to Turn. What is life if, full of care, we have no time to stand and stare? No time to turn at beauty's glance and watch her feet, how they can dance. A quote from W.H. Davies. By order of my superiors, I am to advise to the captain of the yacht Ingles, Contento, that the total amount of expenses for any repairs, fuel or provisions must be paid in dolares or libras, e istelinia. I shot a sidelong glance at the officer. This might be awkward. American dollars were difficult to obtain, and we were not supposed to carry sterling pounds about outside the sterling area. Of course, Captain, you need not have too much worry about that, but I have to give you the notice. Good night. When the officer had gone, I turned to thank the smartly dressed gentleman who had assisted with the interpretation. Oh, it is nothing, he said with a shrug. Then he lowered his voice. Have you anything on board, perhaps? Coffee or cigarettes or flour which you'd like to sell? I can arrange it for you. Ah, yes, we were among the Spaniards again. Uno and Carl had left us and found a passage to South America on a ship leaving the day after our arrival. Len's relatives, an aunt and a cousin, had been delivered in good running order and had joined us on board for Christmas dinner. Don had taken the largest part in the manufacture of a suitable pudding and cake to the accompaniment of feminine shrieks of horror at some of the methods we used in our galley. Len had also duly brought us the dinner we had earned for the passage. In every port at which we had called, we had spent most of our time working on the boat, but we had determined that in the Canaries, the land of perpetual spring, we would rest and relax, and now we looked with considerable interest at the place we had chosen. The harbour of Puerto de la Luz, the port of Las Palmas, is a magnificent one, and from our berth in the inner harbour we looked over the white commercial buildings of Puerto de la Luz to the rugged mountains in the centre of the island. Round us, the harbour was forested with the masts of trading and fishing boats, stately schooners and ketches, gaudily painted little cutters, ragged little sloops, clipper-bowed boats, spoon-bowed boats, boats of every shape and condition. To anyone who imagined that the days of commercial sail were completely past, it made an inspiring picture. Few of the boats had motors, and we used to watch them heeling to the trade when as they beat out of a crowded anchorage, some with gleaming hulls and straining white canvas, others with naked wood showing through the paint and patches on their sails. Shortly after our arrival, a tragedy occurred in Las Palmas. A local businessman had selected a dinghy from the yacht club jetty, rowed out to sea and committed suicide by drowning himself. This was indeed very tragic, but of more immediate concern to us was the fact that the dinghy, which had figured in the drama, was our own. A glimpse caught by a passing ship the next day was the last that was seen of it. After considerable searching, we managed to find another to take its place, a shapely little ten-footer and the only rowboat on the island which was not built like a battleship. We made new chocks and stowed it right side up on deck as we considered the advantages of this over the more usual method. The Canary Islands was noted for three things, their bananas, their tomatoes and the beauty of their senoritas. One banana looked very much like another to us, but the charm of the senoritas 
had a much more devastating effect on impressionable young bachelors like ourselves. In all these departments, there is a strong rivalry between the island of Gran Canaria, on which Las Palmas is the capital, and the other major island in the group, Tenerife, with its capital of Santa Cruz. So we decided to visit Tenerife, just to compare bananas, and one evening packed the relatives aboard and sailed through the night across the 50-mile dividing channel. As we approached Tenerife, the dawn was beginning to tint the volcanic ridges of its northern end. Steep valleys and chasms scarred the coast, but as we approached Santa Cruz, we saw that the island smoothed out in a gentle curve to the slopes of the Pico de Tide, the majestic mountain cone which dominates the island. The level rays of the sun gilded the little clouds which played about the summit and glinted on the white buildings of Santa Cruz itself in the foreground. We found Tenerife more sophisticated and tourist-conscious than Gran Canaria, with a larger number of souvenir shops, sidewalk merchants and open tourist taxis. But it was a very lovely and dramatic island with a breathtaking variety of scenery. On a cloudless day, one might stand among dancing spring flowers and gaze across the rich green carpet of banana plantations, up the slopes of Tide to the snow cap on its 12,000-foot summit, or one could roam over gnarled rocky peaks and crags where only the cactus grew. Small wonder that the Canaries were once called the Fortunate Isles. They owe their present name not to the canary bird, which was introduced there, but to the breed of huge scrawny canaria hounds, which was developed there. We had the inevitable visit from one of the local black market racketeers. We had no sympathy whatsoever for his kind, so we decided to unload some mouldy tea onto him. After a proper amount of haggling, we agreed to a price, and our friend rode away quite pleased with himself. Next morning, we saw him approaching the boat again. Uh-uh, now what was going to develop? Black Pedro swung the dinghy alongside. Good morning, he leered. Good morning. Pedro produced a screwed-up piece of paper and poured some grains of tea into his grubby hand. Is perhaps it looks funny, no? he said. Is perhaps, we answered non-committantly, but is very good tea. I like to buy some more, said Pedro. Huh? But yes, last night I tried some, and I like very much. Now I want more. Well, well, glad you like, but that is all we have, no more. Black Pedro sighed and rode away. We too gave a little sigh of relief and jingled our ill-gotten gains. The anchorage in Santa Cruz was exposed to a swell from the northeast and was sickeningly uncomfortable. There had been recent efforts to lengthen the sheltering harbour wall, but the seabed shelved too steeply from the cliff face. Very often we were forced to go ashore to the Yacht Club reading room and do our homework there to save our stomachs from disaster. Len's relatives left for England after we had been there 11 days, so we decided to return to Las Palmas. After a quiet all-night sail, we approached Puerto de la Luz on a sparkling morning. Content dipped her lee rail through the waves, and the headland called La Isleta passed us to starboard. We romped round the end of the mole and rounded up in our old place off the Las Palmas Yacht Club. Like most Spanish yacht clubs, it has a palatial building with vast halls and lounges and balconies of marble. But again, like most Spanish clubs, scarcely one of its members cared a fig for sailing or knew a shackle from a shake. It was, however, unfailingly courteous and hospitable like all the others we had visited. We often wondered if a little Spanish yacht visiting England 
would have been given as warm a welcome as the one we received. Shortly after our return to Tenerife, our consciences began to stir and we gradually started working on the boat once more. Content had not been thoroughly painted since we bought her, so now out came the pots and brushes and we called a ship's meeting to discuss colours. Len was our resident expert on painting and eventually the old boat blossomed out in white topsides with bulwarks, rubbing band and chain plates of Prussian blue and decks and spars of light stone. The fishermen watched all this activity with considerable interest as they rowed past us to their boats every day and now they paused to nod their heads and murmur, Muy bonita. When a young lady completely failed to recognise the boat, we were satisfied. Don, as bosun, did some research on the rigging to find a method of lashing the wooden ratlings so that they would not slip. Another of Don's jobs was clearly to get enough sleep to last the whole crew, for he seemed to be able to absorb unlimited quantities of it. The combination of these two tasks entitled him to the name of rigor mortis. An unpopular part of our Sunday morning routine was the cleaning of Content's interior. Cabins were painfully tidied, brass was polished and floors were scrubbed. Sometimes a few square inches of paintwork were virtuously sponged down and our stove was dismembered and cleaned. But in addition to this, any special visit of friends to the ship was preceded by an hour or two of frantic preparation. Some good friends were due to come aboard one day and we took particular care over these agonising preliminaries. Garments were tidied away and books stood primly in their shelves. We had scrubbed the linoleum till the pattern began to fade and had even baked some pastries to be produced in triumph with the tea. Ernest had surpassed himself by producing objects which we were assured were sponge cakes but which in texture and appearance somewhat resembled segments of a thick wet blanket. The aroma of soap and disinfectant still lingered faintly when our guests arrived and we beamed smugly as a fair damsel glanced appreciatively round the saloon. Ooh, I like it very much, she purred. Then, as an afterthought, but how I wish I could have some soap and water and give it a good clean-out. What did you say, Bill? Oh, nothing, just sick transit Gloria Sunday. As we graduated in our command of the Spanish language from the ludicrous to the almost intelligible, we were able to fit more easily into the local scene and to talk to some of the people to whom we had previously only nodded. Our daily marketing helped us immensely. If you want to learn the language, leave your classroom and your textbooks and go into the market and tell a fishwife that you don't think much of the fish she has for sale. You have to learn then. Very often, we used to stop at the little pavement cafe across the square for a glass of coffee and to talk to Angel, the jovial proprietor. We asked him one day if they had ever had snow on Gran Canaria. Snow, said Angel, but yes, it is, his round face frowned with the effort of remembering, ah yes, it is about ten years ago. Yes, I remember because I hire a taxi to take me up the hills to see it, and when I get there, it is gone. A husky Scandinavian yacht was anchored near us, and we became friendly with a young man who was crew on board. He had to cater for himself and was obviously hard up, so sometimes he came aboard content and did odd jobs for us in return for a meal and a few cigarettes. His name was Nick, and he was a sturdily built, blonde-haired Estonian whom we liked from the first, even before we heard his story. Nick had spent three of the war years in Dachau concentration camp, and when the war was over at last, 
he determined to leave Europe and make his way to South America. He knew the sea well, and after incredible hardships and disappointments, he reached Tangier in the little boat he had converted for the passage. He had neither charts, instruments, nor money, and he could get nothing in Tangier to help him on his way. Then, he was offered the chance of working his passage to South America in the yacht which now lay close to us. He gladly accepted. It was not until they were at sea on the way to the Canary Islands that Nick realised his position. This young fellow, who had grown to hate the Nazis in Dachau, found himself cooped up with four ex-SS men, Norwegian Krieslings, trying to escape from the tribunals. The owner had already been detained by the police in Tangier and the others had had to flee without him. The owner was the only one with money, but the other four stayed ashore in Las Palmas with friends. Nick, being an Estonian and therefore a potential communist to the Spanish authorities, was forbidden to go ashore. One day Nick rode over to Content and told us he had something important to say. There is something I would like you to do for me. I have just found a small boat taking refugees to South America. They have agreed to take me as a member of the crew, but there is one thing I must tell you about before I go. While I was on board that yacht, I did not dare to tell them who I was, but I learned of a plot to rescue the owner in Tangier. He will take a small boat one night and row out into the Straits of Gibraltar. The yacht will go up there and will wait off the coast to pick him up, and then they can sail direct to South America. I would like to try and stop that plan. I have no consulate here, but you have, so I wondered if you would pass on this information for me. In due course, Nick left on the other boat, and as soon as he was safely away, we passed on our information. A great number of people in the Canaries had gone, and still hoped to go, to South America, and one day a wrinkled little man rode alongside and shyly asked us in Spanish if he could look at our chart of the Atlantic. We asked him why he wanted to see that, and he replied that he was going to sail to Venezuela with five companions. His ship? The fishing boat Carmen Teresa over there. We looked across the harbour where he pointed. The Carmen Teresa was an unlovely little boat, scarcely 35 feet on the waterline. We felt rather ashamed of the comparative comfort of the content, for this little band would exist on a diet of dried fish, gofia, a form of crude powdered cornflour, and water. Don set to work and traced a copy of our chart and took it over to them. They were delighted and insisted on giving us in return the only thing they had to give us, a handful of dried fish. Next morning, they were gone. I hope you made it, chum, in your little tubby ship. How can those who have known comfort and security all their lives understand the heartaches and the urges that drove you to chase a dream across the sea to a strange land? So the days and weeks pass pleasantly, though always busily, but those islands will always be linked with more personal memories, for it was to the Lawson family that we owed so much of the enjoyment of our stay. Every Sunday and many days in between, we used to relax in the white house which stood alone on the hill overlooking Las Palmas. There we were always welcomed by Fred and his Spanish wife Fina, and by their two pretty daughters, Fina and Mary, and very often too by their beautiful Spanish cousins, Carmen and Maria Teresa. And up there on the hill we spent evening after evening eating, singing and dancing, learning the Spanish and South American dances from girls who seemed to be able to do everything with their feet, among other things. All this was also a great stimulus for our Spanish studies. 
we were at last learning to cope with such awkward phrases as quierote, meaning I want some tea, and te quiero, I love you, phrases which in the early days had been heartlessly seized upon as a means of causing panic and confusion in our ranks. We also learned some Spanish songs, which we exchanged for some of our own. If you are ever in Las Palmas and you hear a bus driver or a girl or a servant in the kitchen singing the old French-Canadian song Alouette, you may be sure that we have left our mark. A birthday in the family made an excellent excuse for a glorious day in the country in the interior of the island. We drove in cars laden with food and wine and for the first time saw something of Gran Canaria. The cultivation of the bananas and tomatoes on which the trade of the island depends is achieved only by the most rigid conservation of water. Indiscriminate felling of timber for making charcoal had, it was thought, robbed the island of most of its rain. From the little cottage where we spent most of that day, we looked out over a countryside which was, for the most part, parched and arid. But we could see signs of a climate different from the past, for the land was scarred by deep ravines and riverbeds, long since dry, and waterfalls from which the music of water was gone. In the villages of the interior, we noticed a sprinkling of blonde hair and blue eyes among the swarthy complexions. We learned that these people were descended from the fair-haired race which had inhabited the islands when they were conquered by the Spaniards. It is thought that they in turn were descended from wandering Vikings who had found the fortunate isles long ago. But there is a legend, I would like to believe, which says that they were the remnants of a people who inhabited the lost continent of Atlantis. In the midst of all this carefree enjoyment, we still had to remind ourselves now and again of the more sordid problems of our voyage. Very often now, we were finding bottom when we sounded our money barrel, and the loss of the dinghy had added to the problem. At this stage, we were asked to provide a small serial account of our voyage, which would, we hoped, mean at least a trickle into, instead of out of, the barrel. Ernest began to organise the photographic side of our activities, and Fred Lawson gave him the use of his darkroom. Thereafter, Ernest frequently disappeared for the afternoon and evening. This photographic activity was viewed with some suspicion by the rest of us. There seemed to be remarkably little actual photographic production. This, coupled with the fact that he had had to have a female assistant in his work and that Ernest Samba had improved enormously, led us to suspect some unusual developments in the darkroom. There were even suggestions that Ernest had earned promotion to the rank of Chief Petting Officer. The time had now come to think of moving on across the Atlantic. We had been nearly two months in the Canaries. Every time we suggested that we should leave, a dozen reasons were put forward by our friends for delaying. On the night before our proposed departure, there came the strongest argument of all. We returned aboard from a farewell party to find content ransacked. The hatch had been broken open and most of our clothes and some of our instruments stolen. There were other oddments which had gone too, the brass rods from the skylight, the dinghy sails, which had just been laboriously repaired by members of the Lawson family, two particularly good rubber fenders and a few lengths of rope. So we postponed our departure and conferred with the police. This conferring with the police proved to be a considerably more tedious undertaking than we had ever imagined. It would have been even worse had it not been for Victor, a good friend of ours who was able to advise us on such important matters as the proper bribe, $25 in this case, to offer the police. It took several days for the force to gather momentum, 
but eventually the whole Grand Canaria Plain Clothes Division, nice fellows, both of them, were called onto the case. Once or twice there seemed to be promising clues, but nothing came of them. We ourselves joined in the hunt and haunted the used clothes stalls in the market, but without result. From day to day there were clues and rumours of clues and we decided to remain as long as there was a chance of recovering our belongings. This delay was the signal for a whirlwind of entertainment, but after four weeks we realised that we were achieving nothing and announced a new departure date to incredulous friends. It was as well that we did this, for it turned out that the thieves were lying low until we left and much of the stolen goods was recovered on the day after our departure. The thieves were rounded up, the chief among them rejoicing under the name of Manuel the Bent. It was a pity we never had the pleasure of meeting Manuel, we might have been able to straighten him out a bit. Shortly before we set out, a new luxury passenger ship arrived in port. She was the Princess Marguerite, on her delivery run from Britain to the Canadian Pacific coast, the last word in shipbuilding. It was a long time before we forgot that we had supplied her with a wind chart, which she lacked for the Atlantic crossing. The payment was an excellent dinner on board with the captain. The day came at last. We filled up with the water and fuel and said goodbye to our friends, to the Lawsons and the Whitakers and the Heads, to the Stuarts and Victor and Martin and Max the Dane and to all the others. We waved to the little group on the steps of the yacht club and beat slowly out of the anchorage. A signal fluttering up the halyard on the Princess Marguerite. Papa Yankee uniform. Bon voyage. As we passed beyond the end of the mole and felt the lift of the swell, we turned our binoculars to the shore. Yes, there they were, two sheets waving from a rooftop where Carmen and Teresa stood. Dusk came down from the hills and Las Palmas glittered astern. Pressed between the pages of my diary was a small scarlet Spanish flower. I forget its name. Well, that's the end of the first chapter. And before we go on to the second chapter, I just wanted to share with you the fact that it's a great pleasure to me to be able to share these somewhat unusual, unique and rare nautical books with you. And it's only made possible by the kind donation by Bruce Hassey of his late father, Rudolph's Nautical Library. I know that when Bruce made the offer to me of whether I could take it over and store the books. He had no idea that I might do this with them and share them with so many people. But I hope that it's a fitting memorial to the decades that Rudy spent bringing these books together. And I want to thank the Hassey family for the great trust they placed in me by making me custodian of this incredible library. Now, if you're enjoying the podcast, you're getting something from these stories, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner or following the link in the podcast description. And there you'll find a link to be able to donate $5 a month to the podcast. That's little more than the cost of a cup of coffee at Starbucks. And that money added together from all the different people from all around the world that are listening to the podcast makes it possible for me to spend approximately 20 hours per week reading the books and editing the shows ready for the podcast. Now, I really appreciate any donations that you're able to make. But if at the moment economic realities mean that it's not possible for you to share money in that way, don't worry about it. I think Rudy and myself will be most happy just to know that people are hearing the stories, learning from the mistakes and the triumphs of forgotten navigators, and enjoying a rip-roaring sailing story. Let's get on with the next chapter. Chapter 8. Some Jocund Morn Pass we the joys and sorrows sailors find, cooped in their winged, sea-girt citadel. 
the foul, the fair, the contrary, the kind, till on some jocund morn, lo, land, and all is well. A quote from Byron. When sailing out of Las Palmas, we had passed close to an old fisherman in a boat. Where are you bound? he shouted. South America, we replied smugly. He watched us for a moment, then in a voice heavy with foreboding, said simply, Goodbye, and bent once more to his nets. This departure, on March 14th, 1949, marked the beginning of an adventure quite new to us all, and there was about the whole thing just a little tang of uncertainty which makes a difference between life and existence. Our first problem was to rid ourselves of our old friend Grand Canaria, for dawn the next day found us still abreast of the southern end with its gnarled crags and grotesque valleys. It was not until the evening of the second day that we finally lost the island astern and made a molehill out of Tenerife's mountain. Though we should by now have found the trade wind, we still had no more than a succession of light airs from the west and southwest. Occasionally, a brisk little breeze came up on the quarter, but it never lasted for long, and we were only just able to lay a course which would keep us clear of the temperamental weather off the African coast. In choosing our transatlantic landfall, we had simply pulled out the atlas of South America and the Caribbean. We noticed a patch of red just below the northeastern corner of South America and found it to be Britain's only South American colony, British Guiana. As we knew nothing whatsoever about it, we decided to make Guiana our destination and aimed for its capital, Georgetown, nearly 3,000 rolling miles ahead of us. The sea soon regained its friendly deep water shade of blue Portuguese man-of-war abounded, and their tiny translucent sails, spread hopefully to the wind, mottled our path like flowers before a May Queen. We captured one of these curious jelly-like creatures in a bucket, and found a streamer, fully twenty feet long, a trailing from its body. They are usually up to six inches long, with oval bodies of jelly which contains beautiful sheens of blue and red. A semicircular sail extends for the length of this body, and it is claimed that they can even sail to windward. We doubted this very much, but they can certainly reach slowly across wind. Sometimes they flop comically onto their side when suddenly caught by the wind on the crest of a wave. During this period of calms, we carefully stowed our fresh vegetables in airy places and brought out our large stock of bananas, solemnly to be divided into four. The boat was then festooned with bunches of slowly ripening bananas, which were jealously guarded and secretly counted. The method used in this division was one which had become a ritual in content, throwing poker dice. Vital decisions such as who should have the extra helping of pudding or have first choice of ties when going ashore were always made in this way, for it was completely impartial. At the end of a week, we had averaged no more than 60 miles a day, though all the wind charts assured us that we were well within the trade wind belt. It was at this stage that Fred and Fina joined us. They were a delightful pair with silvery tummies and broad stripes on their backs. They were only about six inches long, but they were our first pilot fish, and so were named in honour of Mr and Mrs Lawson of Las Palmas. Fred and Fina took up their stations a few inches ahead of Content Stem, and for nearly three weeks never left us except to dart into the blue after a tidbit. Apart from a tremor in their tails, they appeared to be quite motionless, apparently without sleep or rest. 
They were the only unchanging things outside our own 40-foot world, always there whenever we leaned over the bow to watch them. Later, we collected a group of tiny camp followers which travelled steerage close to the rudder, but Fred and Fina never fraternised with them. When we were about 900 miles from Las Palmas, the wind, still fitful, left us completely. Not a breath on our faces, not a wrinkle on the water, the only movement, a long, low undulation of which one was quite unaware when not watching it. For nearly three days we were thus becalmed. The sea, smooth as satin, stretched to the haze of the horizon, and we were as completely cut off from the world as it is possible to be. We lay with sails furled and an awning over the cockpit, as though at anchor. By all accounts, this should have been a period of short tempers and frayed nerves. In fact, it was one of the most tranquil periods of our lives, and brought to the surface no hidden complexes or homicidal tendencies. We relaxed. Books describing ocean voyages became favourite reading, by periodically swilling down the decks with buckets of water, we kept the boat at a reasonable temperature. When we ourselves became too hot, we put down our books and plunged over the side. The cook was the only person who had any work to do, and we experimented with a substitute for the unyielding, case-hardened ship's biscuits which had been our lot since our bread ran out at the end of the first week. Don baked some fresh loaves, but they were demolished so rapidly that the labour involved was not really worth it. We concentrated instead on oat cakes produced in a dry frying pan. We decided to give the engine a short maintenance run and took the opportunity of practicing falling overboard and grabbing the safety line we usually towed astern. The greatest danger on an ocean passage in a small boat, especially under square rig, is that somebody may fall overboard when alone on deck and though it is difficult to take the danger seriously until too late, we gave the problem some thought. Very often in bad weather, we wore light lines around our waists, which could be hooked to various points on the boat. In addition, we carried a whistle slung around the neck on a lanyard. The easiest safety measure was to tow a length of half-inch rope, but we found from experience how difficult it was to hang on for long, let alone haul oneself back to the ship when she was travelling at speed. Then, we hit upon the idea of making the rope fast to the tiller. If the line was now grabbed, the pull would bring the ship round into the wind. Not only would this immediately reduce her speed, but it would rouse the watch below. A 75-foot length of rope gave us 10 seconds between falling overboard and finding the rope, at an average trade wind speed of 5 knots. Not much time for pondering one's past, but a sporting chance of finding the rope. For 2,000 miles, Don had perseveringly trailed his spinners and lures without result, and we feared that he might become a frustrated neurotic. But during this calm, he finally vindicated himself. Two plump dolphin fish about three feet long came idly swimming round the boat. We heard Don's bare feet slapping across the deck and Ernest and I came up to find battle already joined. We glanced a little sceptically at his instruments of war, which consisted of a boat hook, a length of line, a hook and a piece of white rag. But the fish were wildly excited. The rag went skimming over the surface of the water and the dolphin twisted and turned after it. Then, with a swirl and a splash, one of them leaped and took the hook. This was, for Don, the supreme moment of the voyage, and with a deft backhand flip, he swung the fish aboard and clean through the main hatch onto the floor of the aft cabin. Len, who was quietly snoozing below, peered over the bunk board at the flapping, glistening body. 
A mermaid? Alas, no. He subsided again. We were almost sorry when, on the third day, we saw dark patches fluttering towards us across the water, the footprints of the wind upon the sea. The following morning reconciled us to the return to normal conditions. Sleeping on deck during the night, we awoke in the morning to find the sea transformed. It was as though we had suddenly burst into the tropics. We had often talked to the time when we would reach the realms of the flying fish. Now, from the drowsy luxury of my sleeping bag, I looked at the small white clouds drifting up from astern and at sun shining from the dappled sky upon the glittering sea below. I could gaze over the low bulwark at little laughing waves from whose crests darted the silvery forms of flying fish, the ballerinas of the sea, in their long, sweeping flights. At last, after seventeen days, we had found our trades, and we stowed our fore-and-aft canvas and jubilantly set the square. After an hour's work, we sat back and looked up at the triangular raffi pulling above each yard, and at the square soles and bonnets beneath. There seemed a welter of ropes festooned over the boat, a lift, a forebrace, an afterbrace for each yard, a halyard, outhaul and sheet for each of the sails, but in practice the square sails could easily be hoisted or lowered by one person. A few days later, we lowered every sail to examine it for signs of chafe, and also examined every foot of rope. Neither then, nor at the end of our crossing did we find any chafe. The raffees proved to be the most valuable sails, area for area on the ship, for it is very important in ocean work to carry as much sail as possible well above the interference of the long ocean swell. Our total area turned out to be a little under 500 square feet. 600 would have been better. During the next few days, the wind settled down to its steady 15 to 20 knots from the northeast, and our daily run climbed above the 100-mile mark and hovered about 120. About this time, when we were not quite halfway across, we tried some experiments with the rig. After disentangling ourselves from the resultant web of gear, we discovered to our delight that Content would steer herself with the tiller free, the wind fine on the starboard quarter, and the starboard yard swung slightly forward. For ten days, the helm was not touched. We were hundreds of miles from any steamer track, and we stood no watches by day or by night. With the bit between her teeth, the old boat took charge and cantered through the night, while we slept soundly below. If we wandered a few miles to port during one day, we would wander back the next. It was a little bit weird to go below after taking a last look round in the dark, and to know that old Content would be the only one awake, and to hear the rush of water past her planks. In the morning, we came blearily on deck to find the compass course unchanged, and slipped back into our bunks again. So, for a while, we became passengers on our own ship, with time to savour to the full this trade wind sailing. In many ways it was a perfect existence. We had the blessing of unchanging good weather. Day after day the wind rustled up from astern and lifted our sails for the sun to bleach. Day after day the sapphire sea dimpled playfully round our hull or spluttered pretentiously past us on its way. Day after day again we saw the soft whiteness of clouds and the sudden crimson of dawn and evening sun. At night, we could sleep on deck beneath the arch of the sails in the moonlight or share the solitude of the stars when the moon had gone. We could not ask for more. But, on the other hand, there was the rolling. Content takes a sneaking delight in it at any time, but under square rig, she surpassed herself. 
Fortunately, it was a slow, steady motion, easy on gear and stomach alike, and we grew quickly accustomed to it. But always there was an automatic bracing of muscles against the motion, and even in sleep, legs and arms were taut with subconscious effort. We were living in a little world which was never still for two consecutive seconds, and which rolled approximately 100,000 times on the crossing. Every task on board took twice as much time and twice as much energy as usual. Everything moved unless it was securely chocked off. The clothes swayed backwards and forwards in the closet, the books flopped over on the shelves, and the crockery clinked in the racks. Cooking required more acrobatic skill than culinary art. The gravy slopped over the oven from our choicest pies, and boiling water poured from the kettle onto unguarded toes. One often had to scoop up sugar or chase dried peas from an overturned tin. But no matter how many little discomforts there may be at sea, one's real cares and worries seem to drop out of sight as the land slips behind the horizon. Once we were at sea, there was no point in worrying. There was nothing we could do about our problems till we reached the next port. And there, anything might happen, and usually did. Life was, for a while, Stripped of its artificialities, rationing and devaluation and nationalisation seemed quite unimportant compared with the state of the wind and the sea and the length of the day's run. The daily run and the date of our arrival were constant topics of conversation when we leaned back in the saloon after lunch. We had, during the first few days, provided unlimited fuel for the fires of conjecture by organising a sweepstake on the arrival at Georgetown. Each of us had studied the wind and current charts and made his guess. Don, though usually the most cautious of us, chose April 15th, myself the 16th, Ernest the 18th, and Len, who had been somewhat sceptical about trade winds, the 22nd. Len had decided to study navigation on the crossing and was now taking a course with Ernest. At intervals during the day, snatches of salty conversation concerning azimuths, declinations and dips floated through the saloon skylight. Len would then come triumphantly on deck waving a sheet of paper and shout, OK boys, put your boots on, we're ashore. Most of the navigational work fell of necessity on Ernest, so he at least still had his problems. Every day we were able to pick up on our radio a BBC time signal from London which made us independent of the vagaries of our timepiece. A position line was obtained every morning and afternoon and crossed with a noon latitude. When necessary, a three-star fix or a latitude by pole star was taken as an added security. The navigation had always been successful and our landfall on this crossing was a triumph for Ernest. Marine life was disappointing. Our most interesting and welcome visitors were the schools of porpoises which frequently came to frolic and jostle round our bows. They barged against each other in sheer fun, planed down the faces of the waves or skidded down the slopes on their tails. They seemed to be the happiest creatures alive, and we loved to watch them. There were usually one or two tiny petrels winging and wheeling over the waves, but apart from these, the flying fish were our only companions in our circle of sea. The first flying fish to come aboard had landed in Ernest's lap an hour before he was due to start cooking breakfast. He might have turned the scales at all of four ounces, had he had that honour. But instead, he graced the plate of Don, who had won the preliminary dice-throwing session.
I think we fed ourselves better on the Atlantic crossing than during any other period of similar length. Our food was not elaborate and such delicacies as canned fruit were used only when celebrating some particular event, such as a record day's run. Our meat was mostly corned beef, but by disguising it in curries and stews and pies, we remained on fairly good terms with it. Potatoes and onions lasted throughout the trip and Len had hand-picked tomatoes at various stages of ripeness, which gave us a steady supply for three weeks. After this, we attacked a supply which Don had bottled in Las Palmas. Bottled tomatoes retain their vitamin content better than other fruits. Drinking water was no problem, for we found a ration of half a gallon per man per day to be ample if salt water is used for washing and is added in cooking instead of salt itself. Our usual beverage on board was coffee, except for Len. Len was a fanatic tea drinker, and every hour of the day was tea time for him. With a large mug of it in his hand, he was happy, and he would stretch his long form back on the saloon settee and beam across the cabin. On our 22nd day, we passed the halfway mark. The rolling was still bad, and we tried setting a small steadying sail. This improved the motion, but upset the self-steering, so we abandoned it. Better, we thought, to have discomfort than work. After all, were we not seeking the fifth great freedom, freedom from work? We had gradually grown accustomed to the unchanging panorama of sea and sky, and had accepted it as part of our lives without particularly worrying about when it would end. The sea and the sky held no milestones. Every evening after supper, we withdrew to the cockpit with our dainty pint mugs of coffee and talked in the darkness of all manner of things and of nothing. And all the while, the sea rustled up astern and scattered a few drops of phosphorescence in its passing. After four weeks, we had less than a thousand miles to go. As the distance dropped down through the hundreds, excitement mounted and we watched the pencil line trickling across the now grubby face of the chart. We began to feel the thrill of an approaching landfall, and at the 300 mark, Ernest and I shaved off our beards as a gesture to civilization. The situation confronting us was not without its complications, for Georgetown is a notoriously difficult port to make. The coast, each side of it, is low and featureless, there are no friendly lighthouses, indeed, on most parts of it, there are no lights at all. A strong but variable current sweeps up towards the reefs, protruding like fangs from the mouth of the Orinoco River. There was, however, one compensation. The offlying waters are shallow enough to allow one to take soundings while still out of sight of land, and it was to our lead that we turned for comfort. As we approached this rather intimidating coast, we decided to aim not at Georgetown itself, but 15 miles up current of it, so that, on sighting land, we would know in which direction Georgetown lay. On April 14th, 31 days out from Las Palmas, we saw the first indications of this approaching land. The water lost its sapphire tint and became pale green, while the seas became shorter. The trade wind weather faltered now and again, and sent us one or two small rain squalls swinging past us. During the previous night, we had seen the lights of a ship, and that morning we saw our first actual ship for more than four weeks, a large steamer ponderously crossing our bows. In the afternoon, we took a precautionary sounding 
and as expected, found no bottom. On the 15th, the water was no longer green, but muddy brown, and before noon, we decided that we should be in soundings. The climax was drawing very close. We decided to heave to and cast our lead upon the waters. Down plummeted the lead. Down flicked the loose coils from the leadsman's hands. Down the line went, suddenly slack. By the deep, 16. We had touched South America. Sail was shortened and watches doubled that night as we raced on towards the hidden shore. Twice we took soundings. Dawn found us peering anxiously ahead. We must be very near now. Two hours streamed by in the froth of the wake. Nobody bothered about breakfast. Len even forgot his tea. Land ho! sang Dong's exultant voice from aloft. And we crowded forward by the mast, gazing unbelievably at the low line of mangrove swamp, which showed dimly through the haze about five miles ahead. We were by now under fore and aft canvas again and swung to starboard up the coast. The sea, sheltered by twenty miles of shallow water, was extraordinarily smooth, but the weather was squally. Sometimes we loitered in maddening calms. At others, we raced blithely through the smooth water at seven and eight knots. To port, the monotonous low line of green slunk past, and in the afternoon, showers of warm, heavy rain fell. We rushed out on deck, clutching cakes of soap at each downpour, and soaked and soaped the accumulation of salt from our bodies. The problem was to apply and remove the soap before the squall had passed, and it was nothing to see the helmsman, tiller in one hand and soap in the other, gazing hopefully to windward, while a fine white lather covered him from trunk to toe. Still with no confirmation of our position, we noticed the character of the coastline changing. Small white houses punctuated the green, and far ahead a shape appeared which might have been a light ship. We perched in the rigging like flies in a web and peered through binoculars, but a squall came down and we saw nothing. When the rain had passed, the light ship showed clearly ahead, and we saw the mouth of the Demerara River on which Georgetown lay, opening on the port bow. We swung into the Boyd Channel 20 miles from our landfall. In the late afternoon sunshine, we sat in the cockpit contentedly sipping from mugs of tea and watching the wooden bungalows and white buildings, the leaning palms and the fishing boats, and we felt the throb of a new continent. Well, that's the end of this episode of Rare Nautical Reads. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have any aspirations to get out on the water yourself, find out what it's like to get beyond the horizon, out of sight of land, go over to spartanoceanracing.com. That's the company that I started seven years ago, which gives sailors of all ages, all backgrounds, and all skill levels the opportunity to get onto 60 and 80 foot boats with professional crew and find out how to safely and effectively take on a long distance offshore passage. If you can't get out on the water, you can go over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner and there you'll find all the podcasts, you'll find blogs, you'll find gear reviews and also the Spartan online seamanship training syllabus, which we've been working on now for over a year. This means every month we put out a 45 minute to one hour video, very nitty gritty, very in detail, looking at exactly how you complete tasks on the boat, how systems work, how to navigate electronic gear, 
dealing with problems, fixing things, the engine, it's all in there. Um, the last, I guess, is YouTube. If you go over to YouTube forward slash The Mariner, also lots of stuff going on there and lots more of the video blogs there when we're out at sea moving around in these boats and you can see what we're up to. So don't let it just be in the stories. Connect with us on social media, connect with us um, on the water and make it a reality for yourself. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, I hope you're safe and sound and look forward to sailing with you soon. Cheers. Cheers.